0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is January the 18th, 2016. This is episode 1711 of the Survival Podcast. It's listener feedback Monday, but today we're going to do kind of a special edition. Maybe not the whole show, but a lot of the show is what I'm calling Political Speculation Edition. You guys know me. I I know that Elected offices are above my pay grade and I generally don't even bother to vote anymore because I generally in my district have nothing to vote for and every election is so predetermined that my vote means nothing mathematically so I don't vote. It's not a protest like I talked about last week. It's just an acceptance of reality. Give me something to vote for, uh, like more liberty and freedom. Give me something to vote for, like preventing my state or the nation from going deeper into debt. Give me something to vote for, like repealing a victimless crime, and I'll go vote for it. Give me someone to vote for who would actually do those things. And I might go vote for them if I thought that it was going to matter. But I only say that today so that you can understand where I'm coming from with this. This is pure speculation, but I believe it's informed speculation I believe I have a better handle on what's most likely to occur in the coming elections as far as who you're going to see running and what the results will be than most of the people you hear in mainstream media. Um, I, I, I want to be clear, though. None of this is what I want. None of this is making a case for a candidate. In other words, I'm, like, I'm going to talk about Bernie Sanders today. I'm going to tell you, Bernie Sanders could win. That doesn't, And I'm going to tell you why I think he could win. That doesn't mean I think those are good things or that I'm saying we should support the burn. What I'm saying is this is why it could happen. I'll also tell you why Trump could win and why that actually, if you had a Trump-Sanders election, you're guaranteeing something that most people in this audience don't want but is coming. And I've told you it was coming since 2009. I told you this was coming. Um and no, they're not that different on some of the issues. And with a Hillary Clinton, you'd probably get it. And with a Rubio or a Cruz, you might. I don't know. It depends on how they angle it. Like I said, I think it's coming this term, this next presidential term. And I'll make my case for why. And again, just to be clear, I'm not saying I want this stuff to happen. Because I know some people are going to be mad at me. Like, yeah, I can't believe you've turned sides. No, I'm just telling you what I think is going to happen and what you need to do to be prepared for it. Because that's what I want to do today. I want to, I want to start looking, let's say, at the next five years. We're going to have an election. We're going to have a new president. We're going to have a plethora of new policies and stuff going on and in, in political battles in Washington. And some of it's really going to impact you. It is. And and you need to be prepared for those impacts so you can adjust to them in advance. Before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Uh, what are you going to get from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason? Shockingly enough, you can get Berkey water filtration systems from Jeff because he is the Berkey guy, the actual one, the only Berkey guy. There's a lot of places you can get a Berkey, but I only know of one Berkey guy, and I only know of one person with Jeff's fanatical dedication to his customers. Absolutely beyond belief how dedicated to customer service Jeff is and to making sure everybody gets uh, what they were expecting, and if there's a problem, it gets corrected fast and properly. Uh, Jeff's been with me as a sponsor for more than five years now. That's kind of unheard of in podcasting. It's really kind of unheard of in conventional radio, if you really think about it, to have sponsors stick with somebody that long. He does a great job for this audience. I I haven't had any real complaints about him in five years. I had one person mad, but it was one the post office did it, and there's only so much a person can do about the post office. Um, Jeff just takes care of everybody, and he has some of the best pricing available because those years of great customer service – have made him one of the top distributors for Berkey in the world. So he gets some really great pricing that he passes along to you. He also has a lot of other really great stuff for your prepping needs. You'll find all his Berkey stuff and all his other great stuff, like the Survival Cave line of long-term storable foods, at his website, directive21.com. Again, the website for Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason directive in the numbers 2-1, followed by a dot and a com. Check them out today, and don't be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could deal with the original, the one and only, the true Berkey guy, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, westernbotanicals.com. I am a big believer in going to herbs before going to conventional medicines. Be they prescription drugs, over-the-counter, I don't care. Um, I have personally found that herbs are a more gentle way to treat uh, the acute symptoms and chronic symptoms that we all deal with on a daily basis. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I don't prescribe treatments, and I never claim to. And the people at Western Botanicals, while they are a chiropractic facility, also don't make medical recommendations. They simply provide the highest quality herbs, Raw herbs and herbal supplements and other things like essential oils for your own use. And they're real people that really care about you. And if you pick up the phone and call them, someone in Utah, not New Delhi, will answer the phone and help you make the right decisions for yourself. That's what Western Botanicals is all about. They are a great sponsor. They have been with us a very long time six plus years. That is that is forever in the world of podcasting. They also have a program called their Premium Membership Program where they give a 25% discount on everything they sell. They sell that membership for $50 a year every day. If you are a member of our support brigade, you get that membership absolutely free. All you have to do is call them up, give them the code word in your MSB account and they will set up your account for you so you can get 25% off on everything they sell. Some of the favorite things that I use by them are the turmeric formula. Uh, That is one of the best anti-inflammatory Things that I've ever used personally for myself. Again, I can't make individual personal recommendations on it, but I can tell you that I use it and it works for me. If my back is sore and achy, if my shoulder's acting up from an old injury from the military uh, after a hard day working, I go to that. Their deep heat ointment is another great thing for that. They have a pain relief formula that uses valerian. Those are things I personally use on a regular basis. There's a lot of other really great things there. Basically, guys, if it's herbal, and it's legal, you can find it at Western Botanicals where their goal is to create an herbalist in every home to empower you not only to use their formulas but to give you the raw herbs and the ingredients you need to make your own herbal formulations, including how to use the herbs from your own backyard and then get the parts for the formulation you need from them and the extra materials and the knowledge from them. You can get everything at westernbotanicals.com. Check them out today, again, westernbotanicals.com, and if you're an MSB member, do not forget to get your premium membership, 25% off everything they sell, every day of the year. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, of the year 1711, because the episode is 1711. Alex Shrugged has two for us today. We have the Quaker Rebellion and the Promises of Politicians, and we have Hoofing It at the Escot Races. You might imagine with today's theme, I'm going to do the Quaker Rebellion and Promises of Politicians. The northern region of the Carolina province is chock full of Quakers and travel is tedious compared to the southern region of Carolina, where there is easy access to deep water ports. Because of this difficult access to the north, Colonel Thomas Carey was appointed a few years ago to run it as a separate entity. North and South Carolina were formed shortly thereafter. Carey was a big Anglican church supporter, so he imposed a tax to build up the Anglican church. Naturally, the Quakers objected strongly, so he was removed from office. But Carey refused to leave. Instead, he just switched sides and became a Quaker supporter. Thus, Carey's rebellion began. Now the official governor of North Carolina shows up, but then flees to Virginia to escape the rebellion. He calls for a man named Hyde to put down Carey's rebellion. But before Hyde receives his official appointment with all the signatures and seals... The governor of North Carolina Doe, dies. Whoa, Nellie. Hyde tries to wrest control from Kerry anyway. A sudden uptick in German immigration upsets the balance in favor, uh, in balance of power in favor of Hyde and the Anglicans. Not because the German farmers love Anglicans, but because they see Hyde as the establishment. However, the newcomers are deep in debt, so Kerry offers to help them out. And so it goes. By the next year, the Royal, Royal Marines will oust Kerry. Shots will be fired, but not by Quakers. My take by Alex Shrugged. I'm reminded of so many Craven political flip-flops that it's almost too easy to write this segment. There was Senator John Kerry's famous flip-flop when he said he voted for the appropriate war appropriations bill before he voted against it. It sounded so bad he would have done better to simply take the hit and kept moving on. And Governor Mitt Romney was pro-choice before he was pro-life. He actually stood his ground on that flip-flop. He flopped. And I didn't like seeing Governor Chris Christie walking down the beach with President Obama after Superstorm Sandy. Even though it was his job to do the best he could for New Jersey, it just seemed wrong. And don't get me started on Hillary. She was a Goldwater girl in 1964. President Ronald Reagan was a Democrat before he was a Republican, but he had such a long history of making Republican-like statements that one story story tells of a lady heckler who asked him why he didn't just sign up to become a Republican. When Reagan came up with the lame excuse that he didn't have the proper form to switch parties, a lady produced the form, and he filled it out immediately. Frankly, I've been disappointed so many times in the past. I no longer trust any politician. Now I assume they are all liars, and it goes downhill from there. Indeed, I, I believe the majority of politicians will will say whatever they have to to get elected in a given election. That's that's what you do. That's what the system actually encourages, if you actually look at it that way. Um, if we were to provide... You know, I think there's other ways we could elect leaders. I really do. I'm, I'm not going to get deep into that today, but if we actually had leaders elected who weren't running, would be one oddball way to look at it. People who the country simply looks at their actual performance and says, this person would make a good governor in this position. Um, I know as an anarchist, I'm not supposed to want any of that, but this is speculation day. Like, Would that be better? Because even in an anarchy, you still have leaders. Those leaders just are subject to immediate removal there's times you need to get things done, and you give people a certain amount of authority voluntarily. And that authority can always be revoked. But that's not the way the world works. So let's kind of dive in today right away with some things that I think are coming. Before that, just real quick, let, rem- let me remind you of the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. If you want to support the show and the work I do, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. Uh, it is the way that we pay the bills around here. It's the reason I'm able to do this show every day. Without people like you that support the show, I couldn't do it. I'd have to go do something else, frankly, and I, I don't want to do anything else. I love doing this job. I love uh, being here for you guys every day to give you ways that you can actually make your life better and to tell you the things I just don't think you're going to hear on the TV, the radio, Facebook, etc., even most other alternative media. I don't think quite takes the look at things like I do uh, and like we're going to do today. Remember, if you're a military person, law enforcement, uh, or Peace Corps service, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, either active duty or prior service, you do qualify for a discount to that program. Just email me before not after you join. Put TSPC service discount in the subject line. If you ever email me something like that and you don't hear back in like a day, assume I didn't get it and send it again. Sometimes stuff does get filtered out, etc. Uh, I try to respond to things very, very swiftly. All right, with that, uh, oh, email address, jack@thesurvivalpodcast.com. Again, jack@thesurvivalpodcast.com. That's my email for any and all means. If you're emailing me about anything on this show, TSPC in the subject line will make sure that that email comes to my attention as such. All right, so let's get into this. I want to start out with, I had kind of a debate with uh, my buddy Ben Falk from the expert counsel, who's from Vermont and, of course, then is likely to, you know, at least consider supporting Bernie Sanders, and he does. And Ben and I differ about a lot politically, and we, we agree about a lot, I think, ethically and morally. We just, you know, Ben still has some hope for the political process. And we had this long, friendly debate about Bernie Sanders and some of his policies, and, uh, you know, Ben said he's not for gun control. I'm like, well, I trust Bernie Sanders to say what he means, and actually carry through with it. I actually think Bernie Sanders is one of the most honest people in in politics today. I'm not saying he's honest. I'm saying he's one of the most honest. And generally when he says, I intend to do something, I believe he at least intends to try. So I pointed some inconsistencies out and all. And then I said in the end, you know what? There's not really no reason to take any time to debate this, Ben. Because the guy has you know the square root of F all of a chance to win anyway. But I was only playing with Ben because I actually don't think that's the case. I think Bernie Sanders actually can win. And I know a lot of people are going, oh, my God, not that. You know, here's what I want you to think about. Here are the people that could be your next president with any likelihood of it actually happening. Okay? Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio. That's it. That's it. OK, there's no white knight riding in. Ben Carson is done. It's not happening. There's no Carly Fiorina. Jeb Bush has no, I don't care how much money he has. This country does not want another Bush in the White House. OK, so th- does any of that make you feel really good? And I know some of you on the on the more right side of politics that say, well, Cruz or Rubio. Well, I'm going to touch that today. I'm not even going to touch that. We're going to speculate on the other side. Today, OK, mostly. But I'm going to tell you how some things can work out. So here's how I one of the biggest things I think Bernie Sanders has going for him. I I do think Bernie Sanders is the one person that's come out of the left at this level that can honestly say, I am not beholden to corporate interests and prove it. You can look the man's net worth up, and I think he's worth like a half a million dollars or something like that. And that tells you, after being in, in the government that long, that he's not taking corporate handouts. He's not doing insider training, which senators and congressmen can legally do. He does not take a lot of PAC money. There's no super PACs there. Um, He's really not beholden to corporate interests. Again, I'm not saying that the guy's a good guy. I'm not making any judgment, but I'm saying he can make that case. Uh, As strongly as someone like Ron Paul was able to do on the right, the difference is, the The media made sure Ron Paul never had a chance. They really did The media has not gone out of their way to make sure Bernie Sanders doesn 't have a chance and Ron Paul stood among just like his son Rand is now you know twelve potential nominees and if you end up at the you know if you 're not pulling double digits right out of the gate with that uh, and you don 't hold it then it 's really hard to come out of that race ahead So Bernie was sitting over here with basically no one took anybody seriously except Clinton and Sanders. And people really didn't take Sanders seriously, and so much so that when Joe Biden didn't enter the race, and it was like, we got to have, a, you know, and, uh, the left was screaming for that Elizabeth Warren or whatever. It's like, it's not happening. And then Bernie just kind of resonated with the college crowd. That was enough to put him on the board with significant polling data. That made the media actually have to cover what he was doing. And there's a whole lot of people on the left that are still diehard leftists. That feel the same way the right feels about George Bush. They don't want another Clinton in the White House. They just don't want her. They'll vote for her if that's what they can, if that's what they have. But they don't really want it. They don't want the same kind of legacy the Bush family has for the Democrat side. They don't really, I mean, there's a lot of people that don't trust Hillary Clinton. There's even a lot of Democrats that actually thought Bill Clinton was a pretty good president that don't like Hillary Clinton. She's not the most likable person. So when you give people two choices, what, what do we do in American politics? We pick the lesser of two evils. And there's a lot of, you gotta start thinking about this from the mind, because I know most of you are either libertarian, anarchist, or right wing. One of those three. And libertarians and anarchists are, are not right wing. But we share a lot of common values. We also share a lot of common values with the left. But it's often hard for a person who is a person that will vote Republican to think like you're in the Democratic Party, to understand what's going to happen in their primaries. Of course, they're gonna, the majority of Democrats are going to vote for the Democratic nominee. And the majority of Republicans are going to vote for the Republican nominee. That goes without saying. There's about 20% in the middle that swings And that's that's what the whole election ends up being about. But we we don't think about the primaries this way. If you're a Democrat right now, you have to think about what does the average American Democratic citizen want. They want the rich to pay more taxes. Bernie Sanders means for the rich. He ain't kidding either. He means for the rich. He also means for a lot of the middle class. A ton of the middle class to pay more taxes. But... The majority of people that are registered Democrats today are either affluent and don't care if they pay more taxes because they don't get it because they don't think it's that big a deal or they're so far down in an income level that the, 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 the increase on the middle class isn't going to affect them so they don't care. There's a lot more of the Republicans that are in that. Kind of space of the middle class that like seventy five to one hundred fifty to two hundred thousand dollar family income range. Then there are Democrats. They Democrats in general. I know I'm going to get an email from hate mail. From, I make one twenty five and I'm a Democrat. My whole I understand that. In general, I'm talking about trends here. Okay. In general, the 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 average registered Democrat tends to be lower income or significantly higher income. Not all rich people are Republicans, especially when you're talking about what we consider street-level rich. Right? We're not talking about the uber-wealthy, the super-affluent, the people that own banks and, and jets and stuff. We're talking about the people that do better than their neighbors five blocks down the road. We're talking about the people that can afford to send their kids to private school, but they may not because it's still a stretch for them. Okay? That's what we're talking about when we say wealthy in this context, and that's the class warfare form of wealthy. Well, Bernie means to tax those people out the wazoo, primarily through raising the cap on Social Security. Okay, so you raise the cap on Social Security from whatever it is now, which is like one ten, one eleven, or something like that. And generally, the cap constantly gets raised. It happens almost every year; they raise it a few thousand dollars. But he wants to go ahead and raise it from whatever it is now in that one ten, one fifteen range to two hundred fifty thousand dollars. That would be since Ronald Reagan the largest increase on taxes in the history of the free world. Doesn't sound good, does it? But who is voting in the Democratic primary? People that largely don't care or don't even understand what that means. You know who this is going to hit the hardest? Self-employed. The self-employed person that's making $150,000, $170,000 a year that's killing themselves because they're going to pay that tax double. See, when you're self-employed, you don't just pay the 6 7% that you see come out of your paycheck as an employee. Whenever you pay that money, your employer matches it. As a self-employed person, I pay both sides of my Social Security, even though there's a good chance it won't be there for me. But again, who votes in Democratic primaries? Most affluent Democratic voters are employed. They only see half of it. They only see half of it. Most, the majority, the trend. Or they're at an income level where they don't even care. When they hear about somebody getting their taxes raised that makes over $100,000 a year, and they're getting by at thirty five, they don't care. They're like, that guy's rich, even though he's not. Again, you got to put yourself in. So he makes a very compelling case to his base, which is who votes in a primary. The other big thing he's pushing for a free college for all is uh, is actually far more popular than you would think. It's far more popular than you would think in the dense population areas of the country. There's a lot of people that think we should have that. And you know who thinks we should have that? College students, the same type of students that elected Barack Obama the first time around. Now They're not going to get all this stuff. They're not going to get all this stuff. Now, what the other thing is, is what we've been told is there's no way to pay for all this stuff. Sanders has a way to pay for it. It involves theft and coercion and taking people's wealth away. But the numbers work. So he can make that case. And the last thing that seems like a poison pill to talk about, but it's not, and I'll prove it to you in a second, because the leading candidate on the right is talking about it, is a single-payer health care system. And this is what I told you. I told you in 2009, 2010, before the Health Care Act, Obamacare passed, before it passed, I said, number one, you can make all the phone calls you want. They're going to sell you out. At least one Republican will go across the line, one that can afford to. And in in the House, the Democrats have it. They're going to get it done. And I got so much hate mail over that. I'm like, look, I'm not saying I want it. I'm just telling you what they're going to do. And I also said, before it passed, it is going to be so bad. It is going to drive the cost of health care up so much that people will simply not be able to afford it. And it's most likely that a Republican president, after Barack Obama's two terms, will come into office and bring a full government takeover after Republicans have been the ones fighting it the entire time. And this is why. People will give in. People will give in. And I'll tell you why people will give in. Right now, the cost of health insurance for myself and Dorothy, just the two of us, is a bit over $11,000. $11,000 a year. Gone. Gone. We'll talk about the financial case for this in a second. But, you know, the, the thing about that is, I'm not happy about that. I remember when my health insurance was much better and cost much less before the government helped me. Okay, not that the insurance companies are a bunch of great guys either, but I do remember it being a lot better. I remember when all of this talk started during the first Bill Clinton administration, that my health insurance was great back then and extremely affordable, and it wasn't just because I was young, because I worked with a lot of people older than me, and they were pretty happy with the cost of their insurance as well, and the employers that I worked for or worked with were able to afford all or a portion thereof, and everybody was pretty happy, but not anymore. Now, my son, his new wife, their son, and they are you know, about to have a, a second child, they, they're fortunate that she just got a new pretty good job that pays decent. She's paid twice a month, but pretty much one of her entire checks covers the cost of their health insurance for the family. One of her entire checks. Half her income. Now, it's really joint income, but since she's the one with access to the health insurance, and, and my son doesn't really have it with his job, all the money mixes together. But when it really comes down to it, half her income disappears into the abyss of healthcare. Okay? And they're paying, I think, close to what we're paying. So when I say half, I don't mean half her gross. I mean half her net is gone. Okay, so they can't really afford that we can absorb that. I'm not happy about it. It's, it, it sickens me that we're paying this much. Um, considering I pretty much cost the insurance company nothing for the last 20 years. Okay. It makes me sick that it's been mandated. It makes me sick that my wife has lost her coverage and been forced into new plans that cost more and provide less of what she actually wants. But she has maternity coverage and she's in her fifties. That's nice, right? Okay. Cause you need that. You got to have that when you're in your fifties. You know, you never know. they and it's mandated. But how do you, how do you feel when you start thinking about the expense of your insurance? And, and you understand the following: number one, it's rapidly getting to the point where the tax penalty will exceed the cost of insurance. So you're going to have to buy it if you don't already have it, or you're going to end up paying the same and not having coverage. Because that's where this is headed. It's designed to do that. That's, that's number one. Okay. Now, the next thing you know is it's going to continue to go up in price. So if you feel you can't barely get by right now, how are you going to feel about it when all of a sudden it goes up 10, 20, or 30%, which is what's going to keep happening and what's been happening? There's a point where people say, I, 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 I don't want this, but I, I can't do this anymore. Because what Sanders is proposing as single payer is basically Medicaid for all. Everybody gets Medicaid, you pay for it. Right out of your paycheck, like any other thing. And it would probably cost the average worker about five thousand dollars a year. Oh my god, a five thousand dollars a year cost increase. No, not if you're paying ten, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars or more for your current insurance. If you're In my instance, again, I'm not making a case for him. I'm making the case that America will be given. I'm spending about $11,000. Tax me $5,000 for my health insurance, and I put $6,000 back in my pocket. It doesn't matter who gets the money. It matters how much money leaves my hands. And the, 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 the harder it is for me to pay my bills at the end of the month, the more that's true. Now, look at the glorious chess gambit that was Obamacare. We're going into a recession right now. It, it's happening right in front of you. By the time we get to the election, this country will be stagmired in another recession. A stagflation, seventy style recession. A lot of people are going to get laid off. They'll be on unemployment. It'll be a lot less income than they had. The government has mandated that you keep your insurance and you have to pay for What are you going to do, COBRA? And, and you, you you won't even be able to use, you, you, your unemployment will probably barely cover the COBRA that you get when you get laid off of your job. So what are you going to do? Go on Obamacare, and you still are going to pay more money than you can afford. And, and one and a half to two unemployment checks of a family trying to survive an unemployment situation that's not prepared for it, and they have to buy their insurance. They have to. What... Well, <laughs> What do you think that person's going to do, When, especially if they're already a Democrat, and we're, we're heading through the primaries, and this is happening more and more, and Sanders is saying, hey, put me in, I'll fix this. I'll fix this. I'll go to war with these insurance companies. I'll break up this cartel. We'll look at health insurance and health coverage in this country as a right, and I'll make sure everybody gets it at a fair and equal price. And it's going to be the same doctors and nurses. They're not going to go anywhere. They're not going to quit. They're not going to leave. Okay. Here's the other side. Here's the other side. This is, this is the catch America's in today. Do you know who else is for single payer healthcare? Donald Trump. The, the champion of the right from the standpoint of being the, the true maverick that's really outside of things. Let's leave aside the, 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 the concept that he voted for Obama. Let's leave aside the concept that he was uh, a Democrat by his own definition, formally. Let's just leave all that go. He's No matter what, he's for single-payer. He's made a case for single-payer. I'll put a link out today on PolitiFact where he did just that. Not a long time ago, but while campaigning. Okay? As recently as Friday, September the 11th, 2015. Okay, so... What this means for America is if you end up with Trump-Sanders as your two people, and I don't, my gut is that's not going to happen, but there's always the chance that it could. You end up with two presidential candidates that are both for single payer. What does that give the establishment, the true establishment, which is the government itself and the, the, the people that run this country that want total control, the opportunity to do it gives them the opportunity to sell single-payer for three to four months from the two two men saying the same things and they'll just market it a little bit differently and one's going to be president. It actually gives time for the new administration coming in with a new Congress and Senate to have it pre-sold to the American people. Almost like it's the plan all along. So, What does that mean? Well, it gets really ugly if you start to think about it. Because if you're going to say it's Medicaid for all, okay, great. So you're going to tell me that a guy that makes $115,000 a year as a computer programmer is going to pay the same Medicaid as a a, a full-time minimum wage employee, even if Sanders gets his minimum wage hike, which he won't get, that will never in one fell swoop move the minimum wage that much nationally. We, we just won't. We, we It can't be done. But it may be phased in over time. But even with that, are you you really going to say that the, 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 they can afford it? So what will have to happen for this to work is it will be a lot more like Social Security. The more you make, the more you pay. That's the only way to make the numbers work. That's the only way to make it where you can take it out of somebody's paycheck or make the self-employed person pay it and not have a complete revolution on your hands. Because if you tell a person that makes $16,000 a year that 5000 of it's going to go to health insurance, they're likely to take up arms. Well, what about Obamacare? You see, there would be no Obamacare. There's no, there's no pool for that person to go into unless they created a new pool. But they don't want to do that. They want a single-payer system. And what that means is the government is the one that takes the money and pays it out. That's what that means. Total control. Now, here's the other thing. It's sold on the concept of what? You can't afford it anymore, guys. You need us to put some control over this. Because like, what, what that becomes then is a tax. It's a Medicaid tax. You pay Medicaid tax, you get healthcare. See? Simple. Okay. Uh, has the government ever raised a tax before? Have they? You know? And when you look at Sanders and saying what he wants to do, this is from his own platform. I've looked into it. I want to pay for a lot of the stuff he's promising. I want to raise the cap on social security income from 114 or whatever it is to 250 so that rich people, that's his own words, so that the wealthy, it's actually his actual words, pay the same percentage of their income in social security taxes as everybody else, to be fair. Okay. Wealthy people are not the people making up to $250,000 a year. There's a whole bunch of people in there. That are making a hundred and a half, two hundred thousand. That if they live in cities like Los Angeles and New York, they're as middle class as a person making $75,000 that lives in Dallas. It's just fundamental reality. Those people aren't wealthy. They're going to get a massive increase in their taxes and a big one if they're self-employed. Huge one if they're self-employed. The actual wealthy people are knocking down a couple million dollars a year or more. The majority of their income still not taxed. If you wanted to genuinely tax the wealthy for the perp, and I'm not saying I would do this, but I'm saying if you genuinely wanted to use this system to tax the so and so millionaires, okay, this way, what you would do is you would say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take and keep the cap where it is, and then we're going to put a, a, a like a like a, a slot limit. Up to a half million dollars or four hundred thousand dollars or something like that, you don't pay any more. But when you go over that, you start paying again. That would actually tax the people at the other end of the spectrum. But if I make a million dollars a year and you increase my Social Security tax on another hundred grand, it's not that big of a deal for me. It's not the same percentage of my income as a person that makes ten thousand or a hundred thousand. Theirs is the same, mine's much lower. So it's it's deceitful. It's 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 disingen it's not a lie. But it's disingenuous. It's dishonest. He When he says tax the wealthy, in his mind, if you make $200,000 a year, you're the wealthy. But there's a lot of people that have a $200,000 income that file joint taxes together that are self-employed that this is, this is a massive, massive increase on taxes for. But it's likely to be sold well because there's a lot less people like that than there are people that are way above it or way below it that don't care. Because if you're way below it, you don't care. And if you're way above it, you don't care. There's another thing playing here. That if the new president doesn't get this done right away, there'll be a pretty big support from the people that love the idea of Obamacare. That supported Barack Obama with millions and millions of dollars. The labor unions. This is how you're going to sell the labor unions. This is such a... It's beautiful in its vindictiveness. Okay, The... the, the, the this is why I knew they were doing it. It was so perfect. What the people in these unions fail to really grasp, and they won't really grasp it until it happens, is that one of the provisions in Obamacare is that eventually what they call Cadillac insurance uh, programs, which are you know insurance uh, uh, plans that are going you know, to cost like 15000 $20,000 if you bought it, but you're getting it as part of your salary through your union, becomes subject to taxation as income. In fact, it's worse. It's worse than an income tax. It's called an excise tax. It starts in 2018. 2018. Long way off, right? Two years. Remember how fast the last couple of years went? What this will do is beginning in 2018, the cost of coverage for health care plans that exceeds an annual limit of 10200 for individual coverage or 27500 for self and spouse and family coverage Health insurance issuers and sponsors of self funded group plans must pay a tax of forty percent of any dollar value beyond the caps that is considered excess in health spending and If you just think about the the accelerated cost of health insurance and some of these what they call Cadillac plans that a lot of these union employees do have it's it's quite conceivable that these plans might be valued at thirty let's say thirty two thousand five hundred dollars to make an even number out of this thirty two thousand uh, five hundred dollars and that would be for a, a family plan okay um, and because these are like the, the kind of plans that cover everything like insurance was when it was good remember that like that and they they're very expensive and the unions have negotiated them into uh, and they're not costing see you understand when they're, they're being they're being bought in in large enough numbers that the cost is less than that. But the way this excise tax works is there'll be an examination of the value. If I had to go buy the plan you have, what would it cost me? That's how this excise tax works. Okay. So the union employees that went, yay, we got it done, man. We got Obamacare, even though they're not on it and they have their own insurance. But they want, you know, that's what their rep told them to root for and all. What that means is that person will pay an extra two thousand dollars of tax. On money they never received. So it's like, hey, you know that health insurance you got? Yeah, here's your here's your excise tax on that per paycheck. You know, and if let's say they're paid weekly, what's two thousand divided by fifty two? Thirty eight bucks every every week, just sitting there. What's this? That's your excise tax on your health insurance. But I I I, the union provides me health insurance. That's your excise tax. That's who you pay. Is that deductible from my income tax? No, no, no. No, you got a Cadillac plan. Now, what about the single union guy? And they say his insurance is worth twenty grand. He's paying 40% on about $10,000 of it, $4,000. See, what they're doing is they're creating this funnel. that's such a disaster for everybody. By at least the middle of the next president's term, the country is going to be screaming for this. And I said this eight, nine years ago. That this was the plan all along. And now you look at it and you, you look at it now and you can't see any other option. Cause what's the other option? Where, I'll put it to you this way. Okay. I'm going to put a button in front of you. When you push it, we go to universal healthcare for all single payer system, the disaster that nobody wants. Okay, that button's there. Until you push it, it doesn't happen. I'm gonna start quoting numbers. You tell me when you'd push this button. Your insurance costs you ten thousand dollars a year. You gonna push the button? No. Fifteen. You gonna push the button? No. Twenty. Your insurance costs you twenty thousand dollars a year. You gonna push the button? Twenty-five. You push the button. Twenty-five. Family of four. Twenty-five thousand dollars gone. The health insurance. That's what it's gonna cost you. You're gonna push the button or not? Twenty seven five? Like the Cadillac plan? Thirty thousand dollars? Thirty-one thousand dollars? Thirty-two thousand how many of you pushed the button already? And some of you say I wouldn't do it. <laughs> let me let me try it a different way. Your household income, net take home pay. Like many Americans, for your household is fifty thousand dollars. Okay, this is kind of average at this point. You have to live on fifty thousand dollars a year. Some of you are like, I live on less than that. Okay, you have a family: one mom, one dad, two kids. The American dream and fifty grand, and you can basically pay your bills at that, and even save a little bit of money if you're one for health insurance. Your health insurance costs ten thousand dollars. Twenty percent. Of your family's income goes to health insurance. Are you going to push the button? How little do I have to push that needle of pain up before you go? I, I can't, I can't. I, I don't care if it sucks. This is the trap. This is the trap America's in right now. And you've got a, a situation here where this, the, the, you're, you're honest four people that could most likely be your next president. Sanders is for it. And Trump is for it. Okay? Both of them have a real chance of winning your nomination, even though I'm still saying that ain't going to happen with Trump. Okay? Clinton is not talking about it right now because she doesn't see any advantage to, she's talking about improving Obamacare and making it better and not going backwards and blah, blah, blah. But all Obamacare was is laying the pathway to this in the first place. And she gets the nomination and gets into office if she gets elected, she'll get right on board with this. That was her plan. Hillary Care was a single-payer system, right? Flip-flop, right? Okay, so now you've got three of the five that are absolutely on board with single-payer. Cruz is absolutely for the repeal of Obamacare, at least on paper. And he sponsored legislation to do it, even though he knew it wouldn't go anywhere, so it was easy to do it. In other words, you could do all you want, you could get it through the Senate, it ain't going nowhere, the President ain't going to sign it, you don't have the ability to overturn a veto, it's all uh, symbol symbolism. But what he's for is not just repealing Obamacare and letting things go back to the way they are, repeal and replace it. With what? With what? What are you going to do in the end? I mean, there's all kinds of ideas... But in the end, politicians take the easy way. If you look at Rubio, his, his stance is that we should get rid of Obamacare and we should replace it with tax credits so that people can afford insurance. But a lot of people that are being hurt by this don't pay any income tax already. What are you going to do with a tax credit? You're going to give them money on taxes they never paid? Because right? I'm all, I think it makes perfect sense. If you're going to say that we have to buy health insurance, any money that I spend to buy health insurance you mandated is basically a tax. So it should be deductible from my income tax. I'm all for that. But you have to read through things sometimes to see, will this person go populist? At a campaign event in New Hampshire on October 16, 2015, Rubio criticized the pharmaceutical companies of pure profiteering, according to the Wall Street Journal. Rubio argued that high drug prices are the result of government regulations and the company's attempts to offset declining consumer demand as their products lose market share to new rival treatments. Rubio said, you ask yourself, how is this possible? There are less prescriptions being written for that drug, and yet you're making more money on it than you ever have. The answer is they're raising the prices dramatically, and the reason they're raising the prices dramatically is because they can The market will bear it. It's just pure pure profiteering. Hmm. I'm not even disagreeing with that. But see, that's already, that's, that's heading into the populist argument. If you're willing to start down that path, you're willing to continue down that path. And I don't think you get a President Rubio. I think you get a President Cruz who flips on this issue because it's not like that's never happened before. Or I'm starting to think, I'm starting to think, As I look at this, and I can't believe it, but I'm starting to believe it is possible that you could see a Trump-Sanders race. I think people are dumb enough to vote for Donald Trump. And this is why I say Sanders could be your next president. I think in that race, I think people in the middle, that 20% that always decides the race may very well gravitate toward what Sanders is saying. Again, it's not supporting the guy. It's just possible. What do you do about all this stuff? What do you do about all this? I, 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 I think that there, there's never been a time in history that's more important to consider starting a business and, 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 and flipping the way taxation works to your advantage I think one of the things people don't really understand is, as a business owner, you can spend an awful lot of money in that business that is money that probably you would have spent anyway. And it becomes a deduction from the business. You can provide yourself, and you say, well, that goes into your taxes. But see, if you're a small business, if you're an LLC with pass through income to a sole owner or something like that, it doesn't really matter. Like, there's still a piece of it that's deductible. You know, every time you go out to dinner with somebody that's a client, that's a customer, that's a supplier, that's a provider, that's an advisor, half of that is deductible, for instance. theres I don't want to go into a whole other segment on the tax advantages of business ownership because basically I don't give that advice. I refuse to go down that path. And what I advise you very strongly to do is, as always, tax attorney, CPA. I make all my decisions about what's the deductible and how to deduct it and and how to phrase it and what to do and what not to do based on a, a very experienced certified public accountant's advice who knows tax code better than I ever will. But, I mean, that is one step that I think you 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 have to be willing to take here in spite of the fact that you're going to double up on your, your Social Security insurance. Because, by the way, there is an offset to that. It doesn't 100% offset, but there's an offset. So... If, if you, let's say, pay uh, $15,000 of Social Security uh, taxes, and half of it, or $7,500, was your match, that does get deducted from your income. Not your income tax, but your income. So there's a little bit of an offset there. It still sucks. You have to make a lot more self-employed than you do um, as an employee to make it worth being self-employed financially. If you have a $50,000 a year job or you make seventy five dollars as self-employed, there's a lot of benefits to being self-employed, but financially you're behind. You have to go further than that. That's about where you break even. It is, it is Add half of what you're making to what you, you had, and then, then you, about there you break even. Because people just don't realize how many things employers pay for that you're now going to have to pay for yourself. So... It's one of those things that's difficult, but I think it's one of the only things you really can do right now. Um, I think that all the things that we talk about every day are things that you really might need to start considering, uh, doing more of, uh, providing as much of you can as you can of your own food to cut your costs. Because here's what's coming with all this. a recession, a recession. 2016 is going to be a year that we officially are in a recession. The global indicators are such that you can't really believe it's not going to happen. The advancement of automation, continuing to weed away jobs. More and more cities and towns raising the minimum wage. uh, More and more states raising their minimum wage, which is going to force more and more small companies to lay more people off. That's just how it works. That's also a setup to... (laughs) You think we can't end up with a fifteen dollars national minimum wage? You, you really, you really think we can't? Let me explain how that case gets made. The case gets made that the reason that minimum wage hikes in places like Los Angeles and Oakland, et cetera, don't work, is because the companies and the people move out, and it, there's this great disparity in the country and if the minimum wage was the same everywhere everything would equalize because all of the people with you know part time jobs making minimum wage would have more money to spend and therefore that money would be reinvested back and the employers could afford it and yes things would cost slightly more but that would be okay because since everybody would have more money except the guy that was making 15.05 an hour by the way who doesn't get a raise when the minimum wage goes up you know but you just leave that out and how many people didn't make less than $15 an hour vote let me put it to you that way because that's what I don't think a lot of people understand Is that, that's that's why as a populist you go out with a number like 15 because when you do that the person that makes 12 an hour that says I don't work for minimum wage still can do the math and go that's a $2.50 an hour I will raise right there and I know a lot of you are going yeah but not if you don't have a job but a lot of people don't understand that how many people do you know that think companies just have money they could just give everybody a raise. Let, let me let me explain to you why you can't. One one particularly interesting story right now. This is actually a pretty long article, and I, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it, it, it blends a lot of things together. Um, but it also talks about the fact everybody has probably heard Walmart is closing a lot of stores. They're closing all of their ex- Walmart Express stores because they figured out that business model just doesn't work. But and they're closing some other stores that are not profitable. But they're also closing this one Walmart in Oakland that was profitable. So you, you wouldn't think that that makes sense. But Oakland has raised the minimum wage where this store is. So, cutting to the chase, you can read the whole article if you want to. I'll have a link in the show notes. Using the same net profit on sales, we would thus say the average Walmart store produces about $2.6 million in profits to the company. Or 1.3 million in payouts to the owners, the stockholders. Now, hold on before anybody gets all in a wad about that. 1.3 million payouts to the owners. Oh my God. Whoa. Wow. You know who owns Walmart? Your grandma owns Walmart and her mutual funds and her retirement account. It is one of the most owned stocks in America. The average America has shares in Walmart stock. They do. If you own general mutual funds in your 401k, your IRA, etc., you probably own Walmart. It's been considered one of the safest and most reliable dividend-paying stocks to own, and, and it's, it's because of that, it is very popular, especially as a conservative dividend-based investment. So that money goes, yes, to, to very rich people. It also goes to little old ladies on a fixed income that live off distributions from their retirement account. Just, just so we are clear about that. But when we look at raising the wages here, so, let's look at this. So, what's the impact of a change in the minimum wage on that number from Oakland again? While most of the stores will close January 28th, Oakland was among those that will shutter Sunday when the doors closed and locked good for 7-4 p.m. When Oakland's Walmart opened in 2005, 11,000 people provided for, applied for jobs. The store employed 400. Okay? Again, just to keep the math simple, we're going to be inaccurate. Assume that those 400 people all work 30 hours a week to keep them part-time. Then that's 12,000 hours a week or 624,000 hours a year. The difference between the California minimum wage and the Oakland one is $255 an hour, according to that report. So the difference in the wage bill is $1.6 million. It would cost Walmart 1.6 million dollars a year to give everybody a $2.55 an hour raise. Now, remember remember that the amount of money that went to the the, the distributions of dividends was 1.5 million. Okay? Hmm. So the company margin on the store in Oakland falls from 3.2 down to 1.2, which is going to make a bit of difference, isn't it? And the stockholders aren't going to get any payout at all, assuming that the company retains the same amount for reinvestment, because the rise in that labor bill is higher than the total payout the investors can expect from the store if it is working to average margins. It doesn't stop there either. Oakland is considering raising the local minimum wage to of $15 an hour, another $2.45 raise on the current level, and that entirely wipes out the profit from the store altogether. Why would investors want their capital spent on doing something that makes them no return? And this is what the average American doesn't understand. Businesses do not exist to provide jobs. They... <laughs> They do not exist to provide stuff. They they exist to make a profit. Without profit, there is no incentive to be in business. Walmart makes billions and billions. Yes, and they make it a couple of million at a time, store for store. They reinvest about half of that money in the company to continue to grow the company, improve the company, improve the product offerings, etc. And they take about half of their profits and they distribute it to people that own their stock. And the reason people own their stock is because the company's profitable. So if you keep stores like this, and you, you have stores that tell your investor, you're going to not receive a return here, even grandma, what do investors do? They go to other companies that make a profit. So what Walmart would have to do here is raise their prices. And how does everybody feel about raising prices? No one likes it, right? But that's that's the reality that this puts us into. But what if everybody had to pay $15 an hour? Walmart's not going to close all their stores, are they? Those evil rich people that are paying out all those great big dividends to all those people flying around in G5 jets like grandma. See how this message works? And this is what's coming. This, I think, honest to God, I think it's possible that you could see a President Bernie Sanders. Dude, I shuddered when I said that. Because there's so much awful there, too. I mean, there really is. But it's possible. In in fact, this math correlates with another story I can't find right now, but I read in the past that basically did some kind of of back-of-the-napkin math on this and said if you actually paid every employee at Walmart $15 an hour minimum and then others made more, that you would literally destroy every penny of profit Walmart makes. And I, I see. I think this is where the average American struggles with that. When you when they hear numbers in the billions per quarter of profit, they go, "Oh my god, these rich assholes!" And I'm not saying the guys that run Walmart are a bunch of freaking Boy Scouts or something, okay? But the, the reality is, this is a company that runs on a three percent margin. Three percent, and that means you invest a hundred to get a hundred and three dollars. That's what that means. Quite literally, when bonds used to pay 3%, a billionaire would have less risk and the same return to put their money into government bonds at 3% than investing in Walmart stores and building Walmart stores and all of the things that go along with it. I'm going to get just kind of scary with you guys into why... A Sanders presidency might be close to inevitable. I, I know a lot of you are like, "Oh my God, can't be!" It sounds ridiculous to a lot of people, I know, but let, let me explain why. It all hinges on whether or not Bernie Sanders obviously can beat Hillary Clinton, and a lot of people think that's impossible because you're looking at somebody polling in the fifties with somebody polling in the, the high thirties to low forties behind her, and saying, "Well, he can't, he can't bridge ten points. It's it's too much. It's insurmountable." But the problem is that everybody, and this is a problem with Trump too, and people still saying Trump's so far ahead, everybody's looking at the national poll numbers. Everybody's looking at the national poll numbers. Elections don't happen nationally. They don't even happen, like, in a way I think if you were going to do these primaries right, you'd have 25% of the country vote in four different elections a week apart, and so you'd have like four Super Tuesdays, and uh, it would rotate. So it would be a different part of the country that went first every election cycle. That would make sense. That's not done either. A a couple small states set the tone for the initial election. So the only thing you really need to be looking at right now is Iowa and New Hampshire. Those are the most important bellwethers that we have for right now. And when we look at that, we see that in Iowa, Clinton's only ahead by four points. And, gee, that O'Malley guy no one talks about, he's getting five points. He's getting five points. The O'Malley voter is more likely to move to Sanders. Just think about that, because this O'Malley clown is not going to be around for the entire election. Though he actually seems to make more sense than either one of the other two. He's he's not designed. He's there as an amusement point at this point. But it's only a four-point spread. And Iowa caucuses are different than the general uh, primary elections, okay? They really are. There's a lot of talking and decision-making that goes on in a caucus. It's not the same as you just go in and punch a hole and, and walk away. It's very possible that Sanders either can win Iowa or get damn close to it. And once that happens, people start to take the guy that aren't taking him seriously, start to take him seriously. Very much so. New Hampshire is the other very early primary, and Sanders is probably going to win New Hampshire. Um, Sanders right now is ahead by seven points almost in New Hampshire on an average of the polls. Um, So if if Sanders wins Iowa and New Hampshire, it, it starts to create a whole momentum level of shift in that election. And if if here here 's what i 'm trying to say to you and i 'm going to lay out a very clear case why if Sanders wins the democratic nomination, he almost certainly becomes our next president, in spite of the fact that i 've been saying it would be a Republican, in spite of the fact that i 've been saying it would be a republican he's he 's outside of the fold enough to be what it needs to be something different to get the things done that they want to get done in the next five years okay here 's why let's say Sanders wins and on on the Democratic side and Trump wins on the Republican side. It's almost inevitable that some Republican candidate is going to come out as a third party. The Republican party doesn't want a Donald Trump president. They'd rather not have the White House than have Trump in there. So if Trump wins the nomination, some establishment Republican comes out and they only need to get four or five points to, to make sure he doesn't win. And they'll do it. It'll be the only reason they do it. And it'll make his ratings on The Apprentice go way, way up, and he'll get all the publicity he wanted out of this, but he won't be president. Okay. Now let's say let's say Donald Trump loses the nomination, gets pissed off, and says he was cheated, launches a third party uh, candidacy. Do you do you see what that does? That that pulls away from whoever the Republican nominee is, Cruiser Rubio, most likely, to the point where. You know what? (laughs) The Democrat wins. That could even scare you more if you put Hillary Clinton into that math. That could even scare you more if you put Hillary Clinton into that math. I'm going to wrap up today. I I, I know this wasn't my typical show, but I I think this time of year that it's worth taking a look at. Now, you notice I haven't told you who to vote for, who to vote against, who to call, what to do, what sign to make I, I I don't think it matters. I think it's going to be interesting to watch how this all plays out, though, and and to kind of figure out what the implications of this are. But, you know, my view is the most likely thing is the Republican presidency in 2016 uh, and going into the 2017 uh, inaugural period. But when I start picking it apart this way, it's very probable that that doesn't happen, that you get, you get this. Because here, here's the other thing, like, so... What, what are the differenti- differentiators between Clinton and, and Sanders? Um, Clinton can say she has more foreign policy experience, but Sanders has been in the Senate for a very long time. Uh, Clinton can say that she's stronger on gun control. That appeals to the left. There isn't a person on the left that feels that, that, that Sanders is too pro-gun, no, except the, the extreme that never actually makes an election work anyway, and even they would vote for him over any Republican nominee. So, in a general election, he doesn't lose any of those. Um, what Sanders has that Clinton doesn't is an anti-establishment vibe, and there's as many dissatisfied Democrats out there right now as there are Republicans. It's, uh, it's going to be interesting to watch play out. Here's what I'd like to hear from you guys today, though. What do you think we should do? What do you think we should do? Because these actual, you know, the actual things that are going to happen are somewhat inevitable. And we, we can see a lot of this stuff coming if we open our eyes to see it. We can see a recession coming. We can see that whoever the next president is going to be, it's not going to be any any anyone who anybody really wants that's really thinking about it. Some of you that support Trump, you don't support Trump. You support the idea of someone different. If you actually look at the guy and what he's saying, you, you can't really support the guy. Those of you that say you support Sanders, you know you can't run a country the way this guy's talking about and have it be financially viable. You know it won't work. All his ways where the numbers work, you know, to pay for his stuff, take the current economy and say it'll be at least this good. Well, a lot of these things will, will damage the economy, and then you can't pay for it. Those of you who would say you would support a Ted Cruz, the inconsistencies there are a mile long. Is this the best we can? I mean, yet again, do you not sit back and just look at it and go, "Is this the best we can do? Is this the best we can do for the leader of the United States of America, supposedly the greatest nation that ever has been? That these people are the best we can do?" And I, I keep hearing people say, "Don't count out Jeb Bush." I've counted out Jeb Bush from the very beginning. This—I mean, there's there's so many people on the right. That 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 are have such a bad taste in their mouth from from George W. Bush that, that there's no way you get a Jeb Bush presidency. You just don't. So this is it. So what do we do? What do we do as individuals? How do we start making a, a bigger difference? Because this is what's going to happen: the the ability of the state to influence our lives is going to do what it always has. It's going to grow. But remember how I talked about the fact that we were in for a time of shifts and twists coming? During those times, government never does what? Let's a good crisis go to waste. So regardless of who's your president, more and more is going to be taken in the name of saving the country, saving the economy, you know, preserving America, saving the American dream, helping people that are hurting. That's the easiest way to sell the American people on something. They show them other Americans hurting and saying, we have to do something. We have to do something. We have to do something. Well, I kind of feel the same way. We, as people that actually want liberty in our lives, have to do something. We have to do something for ourselves. We have to do something for our families. We're not all going to run away to Honduras or Nicaragua or something like that, to some libertarian utopia. It's not going to happen. As much as I love the work that the Free State Project's doing in New Hampshire, we're not all going to move to New Hampshire. I, I, I'm really excited to see what happens when they get that big move accomplished, and they get that many people there, what they can do. Is it is it a bunch of things like that? Is it each of us with our own satellite groups and our own satellite mission taking on the system in our own way, proving that liberty works? There's not enough of it right now. There's not enough there's a lot of us that are proving that we can produce food from our own land that we can provide our own safety and security that we can build some level of community but we're we're very isolated really this community here this podcast is a unifying piece and there's many things like that but the the average person that thinks like we do is 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 more today a community that's enabled by technology than by proximity how many how many real communities does it take to change things not on the little level for ourselves but on the the national level, on the global level what is it going to take to get it done it's not a rhetorical question, I don't have all the answers and I don't have this one I'd love to hear ideas from you guys as to what we can do I believe that we are getting to a point where on some level we're going to have to begin practicing very strategic, very smart, very hard to do anything about civil disobedience on a larger scale. That we're going to have to start taking matters into our own hands. And I certainly don't mean violently. Very, very long time ago I said that the ballot box was a fool's errand in America today and the rifle was a death sentence. That We can neither vote ourselves to liberty, nor rebel with armed resistance and, and end up in liberty. That, there's, that Those two things do not work. So we have to find other ways. And enabling ourselves to do more with less is one way. Taking ourselves out of the debt system is another way. I, I actually think that maybe the most noble thing that we can support as a community today is homeschooling. I think that might be the biggest thing we can do. There are so many parents that want to do this that can't, that that, that really want to do this but can't. They they are two fam- too working uh, parents to a household. And I know I'm going to hear from people that say, well, we, we don't, one of us quit our job, and it was hard. It was a struggle, but it was worth it. I understand that, and, and I'm glad you were able to make it work. And I, I'm, I'm actually holding you up right now as a light, as an example of the very best that is America. So don't be upset with me when I just say not everybody can. Not everybody can. There are people that would love to do this for their children that are a gnat's ass away from the poorhouse. They can't. Or they can't see that they can. They can't visualize that they can. They can't figure out how to make the numbers work. I don't know. What I'm thinking of is maybe the greatest act of rebellion we could take today, that we actually can take, that we actually have the power to do, is to make a goal to take 10 million children out of these indoctrination centers and give them a real education. 10 million. 10 million people who, when they're 20 years old, instead of being a program drone of the state, will be independent, self-reliant thinkers. That maybe we need to think about this in a whole new way. I know there's co-ops and stuff, and many of the things I'm going to say, you're going to say there's nothing there's nothing new about it, but maybe there is. Maybe there's not enough support outside of your circles, homeschoolers. Maybe there's not enough people out there who believe in what you're doing that could help you that don't know how. They don't have kids, or their kids are largely grown at this point. Or their kids are in their last year of high school and screw it. I'm not going to pull my kid out in his senior year to homeschool for one year. It doesn't make sense. But they want this to happen. Maybe there's a lot of people out there that aren't parents yet. That that are that have incomes that would be willing to invest in this type of infrastructure. You know, what do we really need to make it possible? See, what the state did, I didn't even know we were going to talk about this today, but when I ask myself, what's the one thing we can do about all this shit, it's the only answer that I have that actually takes things forward with real momentum. You know, what the state has done is they've made school into daycare. And what parents say is, it's not that I don't want to be home with my child, I can't afford to be home with my child, and I can't afford to send them somewhere else. What if we started... Some sort of a way to create more places that these kids can go. What if we started figuring out how to put parents in touch with the reality that maybe you could do things like this? A lot of, a lot of mothers work part time. They're, they're off one day a week. What if they were the homeschool mom for that day? What if people started figuring out how can I talk to my employer about being off one day a week? going to part-time, not giving up all of my income, just one day's worth. And if you had a family of 10 working in a coalition like that, honestly, you have two parents off one day a week. Maybe one's the teacher that, that week and the other's the school bus driver that week. I don't know. Can you set up a nonprofit and provide services to homeschoolers through it? I don't know. I don't know. What if there were essentially schools that were homeschooler schools? I'm talking big buildings with computers and networks and power and everything that a school has. Well, everything that a school needs, not everything that a school has. And homeschoolers could just go there. I know some of those things exist, but not enough. You know, we talked to my son and my daughter-in-law very briefly about the idea of homeschooling. And you could just tell that, like, it just... just don't even bother. I can't even hear this because there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. do you know how many people feel that way? But you want to take power from the state? Stop letting them educate our children. Do you realize if we get, if we get a President Sanders, you know who's going to put him in office primarily? 20 to 30-year-olds will be the primary people that make the difference and put him into office. Fresh out of the indoctrination centers. And if we get a President Trump, the average person that votes for Trump is going to be 30 to 40. They're going to be the people that came out of the indoctrination centers 10 years earlier. Indoctrinated slightly differently. How is our nation ever going to rise to freedom again? If we have students that are going to colleges where they are asked to report people for microaggressions, I, I I don't think we can. I don't think if we if we don't solve this problem, I think all of the other problems are a given. I think if you don't teach children actual economics that they fall for economic nonsense. I don't think if you teach children if you don't teach children actual skills that they ever become self-reliant, competent individuals that can take care of themselves. I think if you teach children, they shouldn't have to hear anything that makes them uncomfortable. They can never be well-adjusted members of a society of free thinkers with free ideas. I don't know, guys. I didn't really come on and do a show about homeschooling today, or unschooling, or non-state schooling. And I think that's what we have to start doing, is we have to start looking at these schools is what they are. They are not public schools. They are not public schools. They are not public schools. They are government schools. Let that burn in. Let it burn in real good for those of you that don't get it yet. They are government schools run by governments with government money, with government employees, with government mandates, and the government's agenda. That's what a school is today that we call a public school. It is a government school paid for with government money that was taken from the government citizens and run for the goals of the government. And you wonder how we ended up here. You wonder how we ended up in a place where you look at the people that are going to be the next president of this country and go, that's it? This is what we get to pick from? This is our choice? Yet again, We look around the world and see how we are so fast becoming irrelevant in the minds of the average citizen outside of this nation. We we live in a nation where we're advertising the availability of food stamps to people that didn't want them. Hey, you can get them too. You, You ask how we got here? We were programmed. We were programmed to be this way. We took a nation that was the most fiercely independent nation of the strongest people that ever existed as a nation, ever. And now people say, what about that? Come on. I'm not just talking about the warrior class within the nation. I'm talking about the average person. The average person that often came from another country to here simply to carve out 40 acres in the middle of the wilderness and effing did it. We were taken from being that to being this in under 100 years. And it all started in the 1860s when we took this form of indoctrination, these government schools, and we hoisted it onto ourselves. And it took a long time. Every generation, they took a little bit more, a little bit more, and a little bit more. Kids got weaker, and the system got better at corrupting them. And now this is where we are. I refuse to not fight. And I know that we do more every time we remove one child from that system of programming than we will ever do by voting. At least now. At least for now. So how do we do it? How do we make it easy? How do we make it easy? I'd love to hear your ideas. That's all I've got for you today. And the song I'm going to close up with, all I can say is, it's the only song that I saw fitting for today's show after having this discussion with you. You've probably heard it a bunch of times. Listen to the words yet again a little bit deeper this time. With that, this has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or if they don't. You, who are on the road, must have a code
1: that you can live by. And so, become yourself Because the past is just a goodbye Teach your children well Their father's help did slowly go by And feed them on your dreams the one they pick, the one you know by. Don't you ever ask them why, if they told you you would cry. So just look at them and sigh. So please help your them with your journey. Journey. They seek the trick before they can die can live and teach your parents well That children's hell will slowly go by And feed them on your dreams